Yes. The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, the Trident Room podcast hosts Luke Gorski and Marcus Antonellis sit down and have a conversation. I actually think, um, sort of getting back to what you originally started talking about, um, I think uh, I think it was Senator McCain actually had a pretty good idea because um, we have these three Zoom walls, right? Mm-hmm. What and we're still sort of scratching our head. Hey, how do we really employ these? Well, why don't we put them in a theater of operation and just pack them full, fill every single one of their VLS cells with an anti-ship capable missile, mm-hmm. and then just have it hang out outside the weapon engagement zone. It it because the 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 Zumwalt's are incredibly capable C two platforms, mm-hmm. and just have them sit there and just get data fed to them. And oh, every yeah. time they get something new, they just let a missile rip. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I have, I have a soft spot for the uh, Zumwalt class. I think it's a relative shame that we're we're not producing more of those. And maybe that's again, maybe in this conversation, maybe what we'll come up with is just start rebuilding those. Yeah. But well, I think that's more of an acquisitions discussion than it is a what we're trying to discuss here because they are very cool i mean i i I had the chance um to take a tour of one and it is very Mm -hmm. all it is a very cool ship yeah and i mean you know talking about comparing you know if you have a zoomwalt missile battery versus a cargo ship missile battery you talk about employing it outside the weapons engagement zone but realistically the zoomwalt class is relatively small rcs and can operate closer in i mean i'm not saying that it's going to be invisible or invincible or things like that but it's a lot smaller of a blob on a radar yeah that's that's very true and it's cargo ship and i mean i think that was definitely written into its concept of operations as well i mean it has it has a well deck for special operations uh, much like the lcs Um, so and i think those two operating together could definitely offer a very interesting uh special operations capability just because they're both they both have very good facilities i mean a a well deck is far superior to a boat davit Mm -hmm. when it comes to small boat operations Uh, it's much safer Mm -hmm. much quicker granted your ship has to have a well deck but the zoom wall and the lcs do um so yeah, and I think that kind of uh, opens up into the, our next line of conversation when talking about uh, offensive capabilities and, and um, kind of the two areas that we've been discussing are essentially concentrating your offensive capability. And I think the next, the opposite side of that coin is to distribute your offensive capability um, across a large number of platforms, kind of looking at, uh, you know, drone fleets. I think ghost fleet might be what they're using now as a term. Um but anyways, having the ability to have lots of smaller craft with fewer, maybe fewer VLSLs if they have VLSLs or canisters or whatever flavor of offensive capability you put on them, um, but distributing them out um, and having this robust or at least uh, widespread capability so that, okay, uh, my cruiser is underway, it la- launched all its SM6s, it still has some Tomahawks, but we really want some SM6s. Is it worth it to send this entire ship back to port to go and get more SM6s on it and then send it back into wherever the uh, theater of operations is? When if you split up that capability and, all right, uh, this ship with, I don't know, eight VLSLs, 
you know, eight harpoons on it, that's fired it all off. So now I'm only losing that capability if it goes back to re- replenish and resupply. I think that um, you know maybe something that fits in a well deck isn't necessarily going to have a VLS system on it. And as we're talking about the not sorry, something that can fit in a well deck. If we're talking about drones, I mean dro- right drones are definitely going to become a bigger, bigger, bigger piece of the pie when it comes to our surface force. Um, it, 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 it holds no humans at risk. Um, and if you get them small enough, if you get them cheap enough, you can have a ton of them. And I mean, the whole distributed maritime operation is about spatially distributing your assets, mm-hmm. but also your capabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so like you were sort of mentioning earlier, if you have a drone, you can dedicate that one drone to one specific purpose. And you have a hundred of them and you have them all over the place. So you have that capability everywhere. Then you dedicate another drone to another specific purpose and you have a hundred of them everywhere and you have that capability everywhere. So then when one drone runs out, you send them back, you shift your network of drones around a little bit spatially and you still maintain your 360 degree coverage mm-hmm. uh, of that capability. Um, and as far as where are we gonna the uh, where are we gonna keep these drones? How are we gonna how are we gonna utilize these drones? I think we're before we hit the record button. I mean, talking about having a drone in the well deck of an amphibious assault ship. I think that's a really cool idea. Um, and then, as again, as we were alluding to earlier, I think that also helps us sort of solve the rearming at sea right. issue because. Um, you have a well deck, you can have an overhead crane. An overhead crane, you can, I mean, as long as you build it right, can have a tremendous lift capability to the point where maybe, just maybe, you can put another standard missile on your drone once it already expended its one or two or three or however many it has. Um, and then it doesn't have to go all the way back to a port. It exactly. Have to, I mean, if we're talking about um, the Pacific, it doesn't have to go to back to Hawaii or Guam. If we're talking about the Atlantic, it doesn't have to go back to, I don't know, Iceland Iceland or the Azores or something like that. Um, right. You can keep it closer, and you also don't have a fixed logistics point. I mean, people can talk about you know advanced over-the-horizon capabilities and the susceptibility of some of our large-deck ships to these really long-range missiles. Um but it's still harder to hit an aircraft carrier underway moving in the ocean or an LH, uh, or an amphibious assault ship in this case than it is to hit a fixed port on an island. Oh, yeah. agree 100%. And I mean, just the nature of that, having a, having a drone that can pull into a well deck of an amphib and get rearmed. I mean, already just visualizing it, that just seems much safer, right? You don't have two ships bouncing around in the ocean. Mm-hmm. You have one ship or the drone ship that's relatively fixed and immobile in the well deck mm-hmm. to the LHA's overhead crane, which is fixed to the LHA. So two relatively fixed objects, I think it's a much less risk, less of a risky operation than the traditional unrep trying to swing a missile between two, ma- two uh, moving ships. Mm-hmm. So... But again, there are trade-offs if we start to think about going this this exactly. drone. A drone mothership is, I don't know, probably not the best term for us to use. But um, I guess we'll use it anyways because I can't think of anything better. <laughs> um, 
is once you start going into this distributed maritime operations using lots of different platforms in lots of different places, um, you significantly, significantly increase your bandwidth needs and things like that. And especially yeah. when we're talking about 2030s, 2040s, we're going to have a definitely have an electromagnetically contested environment. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, the, the, the domination of the electromagnetic spectrum will, I mean, without making too lofty of an assumption or too bold a claim, I mean, if you can control the electromagnetic spectrum, you can, I mean, in 2021 and on, you can control the battlefield. Right. I mean, because if you can't, what is it? Look, shoot, and communicate. I mean, if you can't communicate. Or look, no, even. Yeah, or look. You're right. I mean, especially, yeah, with a lot of the sensors now, over-the-horizon sensors, um, um, stuff orbiting the Earth. Yeah. I mean, they all communicate via the electromagnetic spectrum. So if you can deny, degrade, disrupt, deceive mm -hmm. in the electromagnetic spectrum, you can write your own victory ticket pretty much. Yeah, so I think that's one thing that we kind of really have to be cognizant of because personally I love the idea of you know distributed maritime operations and things like that. And I know that there's some programs the Navy is working on to enable those things. Um, right. But at the same time, nothing ever goes as planned. Um, and there is the tired and true capability of sailors on ships with their own organic systems being able to find and engage targets because that is... It's still disruptable. Cyber attacks are definitely a potential, but it's much less susceptible to interruption when you don't necessarily need to um, go off your ship to ensure that your capabilities work. Yeah, you're right. The improvement of organic capabilities will always be an issue when it comes to the next ship. Like, how is this ship sustained? Like, self, not just sustainable, but self-sustainable. So, if it can't talk to anyone, if it's completely blind past that the horizon in front of you and the horizon astern of you what can it still do with just what's inside the lifelines mm -hmm. that is that'll be tremendously significant going forward given the fact that we know it will be a contested environment going forward mm -hmm. today we've done a really good job talking about kinetic weapons mm -hmm. missiles i think we should definitely dedicate some time to talk about the electromagnetic spectrum as mm -hmm. well and electronic warfare what we can talk about electronic yeah. warfare. Yeah, it gets a little dicier than talking about missiles and things like that. But um, yeah. good discussion at this point, talking about how our current capabilities um, will can and will be employed, you know, in the next 10, 20 years. But I think we also want to make sure we discuss a little bit of what capabilities are coming online or future capabilities that will be available to us at that right. time. Yeah, um, for sure. So one you mentioned before was hypersonics. And yes. um, I think my first question with that, and I don't know if you know the answer, maybe we'll have to go to the Google machine here uh, for a second, but um, can do, can VLS support hypersonic uh, missiles in their current configuration? So the, the realist in me says no, but I don't know if it can physically support that. I know that hasn't been tested, I know that hasn't, I don't, I don't know if it's been looked at conceptually yet, but yeah, I mean, if we are moving into a hypersonic dominated arena over the next couple of years, we are going to have to figure out a way to put a hypersonic weapon on a ship or on a long range bomber or on a strike fighter. That is just the nature of the beast that we are going up against. And that is the, the way, um, offensive, um, 
missile uh, warfare is shifting. That's that's the hot new technology. If you're not talking about hypersonics, you're not the cool kid. You don't get to sit at the lunch table. <laughs> um, so yeah, I definitely think uh, moving forward that you have VLS, which has been tried and true for a while now, and then you have the hot new technology VLS. I mean, excuse me, the hypersonic. I mean, VLS has done a really good job adapting to all the different standard missiles, mm-hmm. all the different flavors of that, to ESSM, to Tomahawk, um, to ASROX, right? Everyone forgets about those. Um, anti, yeah, anti-submarine rocket, right? So everyone always forgets that there's a couple of those um, usually. So, um, so when you say anti-submarine rocket, that's... It's, it's a torpedo a tor- with yeah. a rocket on the strapped to its butt, and it just it, it blasts up. A little ways and then it just splashes down and the torpedo does its thing mm-hmm. and uh you pray it goes boom on a submarine um but Sorry, yeah I interrupted your train of thought no that's yeah. that, that's totally okay I, I think i still have my train of thought um but i think i think vls can similarly adapt to a hypersonic mm-hmm. as well yep because um, they, they all launch relatively similar manners it's not the launch that's different it's the it's the boost the, yeah, it's the size. The I guess that's really terminal. You're, you're right, and and hypersonics require usually a pretty large uh, vehicle because um, a lot of them are going exoatmospheric. So, but SM3s go ex- exoatmospheric, and they have a large booster on the bottom of them. So, mm-hmm. we can do exoatmospheric from VLS. That's that's a known. That's a try. That's a tested mature mature technology. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I think you know hypersonic will definitely play a role. Um, but again, we're only looking 10 to 20 years out. And I think that we also need to make sure we have a balance of high-low capabilities in hypersonics. Because I know that another issue that always comes up is, um, you know, production support. And we're definitely going to have to have some logistics guys or supply guys come on here and help us figure and, out and some of this. Tell but us I, how wrong we are. Yeah. Yeah. Because at least in my, uh, in my mind, you know, you can put hypersonic missiles or have the hypersonic capability, but how many are we realistically going to have in 10 to 20 years? How many can we make? And if we already have a stockpile of, you know, standard missiles and tomahawks and things like that, we're, they're still going to have a place. So you need to have a mix of capabilities, uh, the ability to have a mix of capabilities employed. Um, right. Yeah. And I think, I, I mean, I think our effectiveness at integrating new weapon systems with old weapon systems has definitely come a long way. I think we're mm-hmm. I think we're pretty pretty decent at it now. Um, I mean, a, a couple decades ago, new technology would come out and people would rebel against it. They would mm-hmm. say, "No, the old way is better." I think we do a much better job now, saying, "Hey, here's this new technology. Oh, okay, cool. How can I use that with all the other stuff I already have?" Um, and I think we've definitely matured as a force in that regard. So when hypersonics do finally come online, um, when we start seeing them in our VLS cells, in our canister launchers, what have you, um, I mean, very smart people um, are going to sit down and say, okay, hey, how can we figure this out? And then what, what we're getting better at is they're going to tell everyone. Mm-hmm. They're going to figure out this cool thing, and they're not just going to keep it to themselves. They're going to tell the whole fleet, okay, hey, you have this new really, really, really fast missile that can do all this cool stuff. Here's how you should use it. Mm-hmm. And the fleet's going to say, okay, cool, let's try it out. And then there's this whole feedback loop, right? Oh, hey, well, this, what you said here doesn't actually work. And the smart people are like, oh, okay, thank you. Like, please give us more feedback. Mm -hmm. And they're going to keep doing that. It's going to be a 
a vicious cycle of feedback and shooting missiles and all sorts of fun stuff. But eventually at the end of it, I mean, 10, 15 years after you have introduced hypersonics, I mean, we're going to have a very solid concept of operations for these missiles. I mean, we've always, we've always done that Mm -hmm. slow to change, but once, once we get the ball rolling, we, we, we do a pretty good job from there. Yeah. So, and, and kind of continue on that incorporation of new technologies, um, lasers, right? I mean, it's, it's going to be a thing. We're starting to have laser systems placed onto our, uh, ships. Now I forget which one had it. Yeah, you're um, right. Um, uh, there's one in the Arabian Gulf yeah, back I'm, when I was there. So yeah. So that, and that's another, that's a, yeah, that's a tremendous capability. I mean, cause that just, that offers you, I mean, relatively instantaneous time on target, right? Speed of light. Mm-hmm. I mean, that'll go around the world a couple of times pretty quick before you blink. I mean, lasers just offer a tremendous capability, both offensive and defensive, right? Because mm-hmm. um, with a laser weapon, you can you don't just have to point that 360 degrees around you. You can also point it 180 degrees azimuth, like up to the horizon and maybe take out some of the stuff that's orbiting the Earth. Right. Um, and that's a term. I mean, that's just an even because you don't want to shoot. A, you don't want to waste a missile on a satellite. I mean, satellites don't present at this point in time. Satellites don't present an immediate life or death threat to no. surface vessels. They can jam you. They can track you. They can see you. They can tell other people where you are. But a missile is not coming from a satellite. Right. So we don't want to waste a missile on a satellite. We want to shoot a missile into another ship or onto another uh, anti-ship cruise missile coastal battery. Right. And I think that that, that phrase you used there, waste a missile, um, really highlights kind of as you we were talking about, you know, maintaining your offensive firepower in a, in a war. Um, if you're not using missiles, well, hey, lasers are great because as long as you have power, from my understanding, again, I'm an intel guy, I'm not much of a scientist, but from my understanding, as long as you can power the thing, you're going to be able to you know, have a kinetic effect on whatever you're pointing it at. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. Um, yeah, as long as, as long as the on light turns on, as long as you have gas in the tank and your, uh, your gas turbine generators are still keeping the lights on. I mean, yes, these laser weapons are an incredible power draw. And will we need to adjust the electronic or, um, the electrical distribution system on ships? Most likely. I mean, the new, the new, the new spy radars have tremendous power requirements um, to the point where they're cha- they're changing the generators on the new on the flight threes are getting new generators to support the the power draw on the new the new spy six radar. Um, yeah, and I think that that power piece is one thing that we really uh, need to make sure we keep in our minds as we're talking about what we need because you know we're just talking about what we think is available today, right? And that's only going to increase. And I think that, again, going back to my soft spot for the Zoomwalk classes, my understanding at least is their power generation capability, you know, far exceeds that of some of the other ones. Oh, 100%. Yeah. They, I, if, and I mean, again, I believe they, I believe they use the MT-30, which is one of the largest marine gas turbine engines you can buy for just electric, just, just, just power generation. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's like a, uh, that's like a 48,000 horsepower for one. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's a lot for, I mean, that's what we used on the LCS for propulsion. And we were able to get that sucker up to 40, like high 40s 
knots mm -hmm. and they're just using that to keep the lights on like that's that's a tremendous power generator power generator that, that's a lot so mm -hmm. they have yes they have a tremendous capability for electricity right and so i think that you know keeping that in mind as we go forward um is it's going to be an important piece of this is making sure that when we we have the room in these systems that when we're fighting with them in the 2030s and 2040s, they can employ the weapons that we need them to. And it's not so much of a choice um, between, do I have my radar on or am I firing the laser, for example? And I don't know if that's exactly how it works. I'm an Intel guy, but that's how, uh, when I think of electricity, that's yeah. kind of where it's going for me. No, you're right. And I definitely think as we look towards ships of the future, they're definitely going to be designed first. And this, again, this might present issues. We need to make sure we are designing ships that we can actually provide electricity to. Because mm -hmm. if we build a ship and it has laser batteries and who knows, Spy 17, and it re and it requires like terawatt or yeah terawatts of power, and we don't have a generator that can do that, that's going to be pretty embarrassing mm -hmm. when we don't do the math before we start building ships. So that's another key point. That's yeah, that just. And then again, it goes to, to kind of our just the D DMO and drones and things like that is if we're putting these advanced systems on these drones in a distributed environment, they also have to have these, you know, power capabilities on them. And then you're increasing the cost of all these drones. And then are they really as uh, attritable as they were before? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the one of the key selling points of drones is that you don't care if it blows up. But if it starts to have nine zeros behind its price tag you're going to start to care if it blows up mm -hmm. um yeah so and i mean it's all yeah it all comes down to i mean in spacecraft design you have size weight and power and you're always choosing between those four you can't you can never have ideal size ideal weight or ideal power that's there you just can't have all three mm -hmm. and the same thing holds true on ship design because we're limited in space we're limited by the technology of the time. And I mean, that's that's just the nature of the beast. Mm -hmm. I think we had a really good, interesting conversation um, regarding uh, offensive capabilities, where we see them, how we see them employed. Hopefully, uh, those of you listening are still listening and enjoying the podcast. And we'd love to hear your feedback and ideas as we go forward. This is what we're envisioning as kind of an evolving um, series. So any feedback that anybody out there listening can provide, uh, we'll throw our uh, email in the, uh, the Triton Root Podcast email in the show notes down there. Shoot us an email. Let us know what you think. Comments. Tell us we're idiots and tell it, but tell us why, please, because we uh, we, we want to learn and understand some of the realities that we might not have so that by the time we're done here at MPS and going back to the fleet, we're able to provide um, more to the Navy, especially as we move into these areas of you know near peer or peer really competition. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, well, again, thanks for thanks for putting this all together. Um, I really like this where, where this series is going, and I'm excited to see, see what it has in store. Thanks. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room podcast has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at Tritroom Podcast Host at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash Tritroom Podcast. <laughs>